I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. A split vote by the Pardon Parole Board results in no recommendation of clemency for death row inmate Richard Glossop. The two-to-two tie comes after calls by Attorney General Gettner Drummond to the board itself, along with support for clemency from state officials. Glossop now faces execution on May 18th. Ryan, what's next in this case? Well, right now it seems to rest in the governor's hands. Uh, You know, I suppose there could be a new challenge in federal court. Uh, You know, I think that if cruel and unusual means anything, it, it ought to mean what has happened to Richard Glossop since the late 1990s. I mean, here's a man who's had, I believe, five last meals. Uh, you know, just think about that, mm-hmm. you know, being feet away from the death chamber, uh, eating what you believe to be your last meal, only to have some sort of a reprieve and have the process start all over again. Uh, now he's in a position of having an independent investigation that was conducted at the behest of uh, new Attorney General Gittner Drummond, which an, an incredibly brave political act on, on his part. And the individual that he tapped was Rex Duncan, uh, former state representative, former district attorney. Uh, I served with Rex Duncan in the House. Uh, this guy is not some, you know, softy uh, on, on crime. I mean, he is he's about as you know, hard as you can get uh, on, on you know, punishing people that he believes ought to be punished. But his report came back and said, you know, I don't believe that Richard Glossop is guilty, uh, and he certainly deser- doesn't deserve to die, and he doesn't deserve to be in prison. You know, Gittner Drummond took that report, and he didn't go all the way there. He said, yeah, he may very well be guilty of an accessory. There's even a chance that he could uh, have had some guilt in the actual murder itself. Uh, but the deficiencies in that trial, especially the one in 2004, uh, led the attorney general to say, as, as a matter of fairness and justice, especially whenever the government is going to enact uh, its greatest punishment, exercise its greatest authority, which is to take the life of a human being uh, for as a criminal punishment, um, that we've got to step back and we've got to remand this to the district court for either a new trial or some proceeding at the district level. The Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals unanimously said no. They rejected the AG's uh, request to vacate and remand to district court which I think was a a huge surprise to most legal observers. There's usually a lot of deference, especially from the prosecutor in the state asking for something like that. Um, And so the clemency two to two, I think that we could see that kind of uh, uh, coming up. If Richard Smotherman, who was the the vacant member, had been there, uh, he recused because of some uh, conflict with the case. But if he had been there, he probably would have voted against clemency. So his absence didn't cost Richard Glossom clemency at all. But now it rests in the, the governor's hand, potentially a new cruel and unusual Eighth Amendment uh, challenge that could uh, show up in a federal court. But, you know, the clock is ticking uh, on Richard Glossop's life yet again. Neva. The clock is ticking. And let's remember, the Court of Criminal Appeals, it was a 5-0 to zero 
uh, opinion. I mean, they uh, on the on the question of whether or not to uh, overturn the conviction. So unanimous, uh, they they came back and basically said very strongly that there had been nothing that was uh, extraordinarily new uh, that had been presented even after. Uh, uh, this additional information uh, was put forward. They said it was insufficient to cause anyone to believe that uh, Glossop was factually innocent. So you have that, and then you have the pardon, and, uh, then you have uh, the pardon and parole board, where, as you say, Ryan, the, the two to two vote with one abstention. Um, four of the five of these folks are still appointees. Uh, you have a situation where it was highly unusual. You have the state's top prosecutor basically coming in uh, pleading for mercy rather than making it mm-hmm. a strong case den- for denying clemency. So it was uh, certainly something we don't uh, very often see um, in a pardon and parole uh, board clemency case. So I think in the instance of what what happens moving forward, I mean, it, it looks like their best option uh, may be uh, pushing on this uh, uh, effort with the U.S. Supreme Court, because I'm not sure they have very many options left here on the state side based on what's occurred up until this point. So, uh, but with three weeks remaining, uh, it, we're going to see things move very quickly. And, um, and, and at this point, I don't think anyone really knows what ultimately will be the um, uh, the end result of all of this, whether the execution will be carried out or whether or not there will be something else happen from the from the uh, court vantage point. Well, and I think proponents of the death penalty will often say that one of the uh, uh, marks of a of a good capital punishment system, uh, to the extent that there can be one, uh, is finality and certainty. Uh, and we certainly haven't had that in this case at all. There's there's been you know multiple instances where Richard Glossop. And, and even the, the family uh, of the victim here, you know, the, the Van Trees family, they have felt here's finality and here's certainty. And that has never happened. Um, you know, and um, this, this is something where you know, uh, General Drummond mentioned this uh, the other day. He said, if, if this were something that were happening right now, if this were a new case and it were, it were coming up in front of a court right now, would we even seek the death penalty in a, in a case like this? And I think that, you know, even raising that question is, is enough to, to kind of make us scratch our head of, you know, are we binding ourselves to something by process and procedure uh, that, that flies right in the face of reality? And I, I think that the law has a mechanism to account for that, um, and we should not let procedure, uh, procedural roadblocks here stand in the way of, of actual justice or potentially, um, you know, project us into committing a true injustice of executing a man who either did not commit the murder or did not commit a crime that most Oklahomans would believe sufficient uh, to warrant the death penalty. And I think in this instance, when we when we talk about the fact that the Van Trees family, I mean, the, uh, Barry Van Trees, when he was when he was murdered, uh, beat to death with a baseball bat, uh, he was the father of seven children mm-hmm. that, that ranged from ages I think 31 down to five. And for the last 26 years, this family has been subjected, as you say, to this roller coaster ride of the constant. Uh, process of appeals and all that has gone on with no finality, no resolution for them as well. And I think that is part of this overall uh, conversation when we start talking about the criminal justice system, that we have to remember that there are two sides to uh, every bit of this conversation. Governor Stitt says he's looking at all legal avenues to get rid of the McCurtain County Sheriff. 
The calls to remove Kevin Clardy come after he and other county officials were caught on tape making racist and hateful remarks, saying the recordings were faked and made illegally. Clardy has refused to leave office. Neva, is there a legal way to remove an elected official in Oklahoma? There is. I mean, the uh, state law does provide that elected officials can be impeached. And that's one option, mm-hmm. uh, uh, particularly in this instance where the sheriff seems to have really dug in and is not <laughs> is not interested in um uh, resigning or leaving office, at least at this point. But there, the there, there are eight specific reasons I think, and and some of those uh, are obvious. I mean, corruption in office or extortion or uh, willful neglect of duty. Um, uh, I think a failure to account for public funds. There's 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 a number of reasons that could be uh, brought forward, but it's also a, a fairly difficult process because mm-hmm. you can have you you can have these reasons, you can put them forward, but you have to, the process requires that you have to have a grand jury that has to uh, uh, then mm-hmm. present an accusation, then it spurs a, a court proceeding. Uh, you have obviously the opportunity that to, for uh, the accused uh, individual to mount a, mount a defense. And so um, it, this could be a protracted, uh, a protracted story. And I think uh, for the folks uh, in McCurtain County and uh, all of those involved, I mean, it is something that is not going to go away. As I mentioned uh, last week, I mean, the fact that you've got at least two lawsuits uh, pending for deaths in the jail uh, in the last uh, within the last two years, you have many other things that continue to come to light, uh, both in uh, published accounts as well as uh, just general kind of information stirring around in the community. Uh, you would wonder how long an embattled sheriff who will be up. Uh, uh, all of the sheriffs across Oklahoma will be up for uh, election or re-election next uh, next year mm-hmm. in 2024. So um, I, I think the governor's right. I think uh, putting uh, kind of putting uh, the word out and putting a letter to the attorney general saying, you know, let's move forward swiftly, find out your best option, and pursue it as quickly as possible. Um, and I think uh, it was interesting that even attorney uh, that General Drummond. Uh, at a civic club uh, meeting last week, uh, it this came up, and one of the things he said was uh, basically words to the effect that we had our, you know, we had our sights on one person, and then this kind of the dam broke, and mm-hmm. and here we are with all of these swirling allegations and all of these issues that have kind of popped up. So um, it's going to be a fascinating, a, a fascinating scene to unfold down there. Regrettable on all accounts, mm-hmm. and certainly would be much better if uh, if there was a swifter resolution than appears to be. Be on the horizon right yeah if if any of these folks care about their community uh they step down immediately uh and and, and spare mccurtain county uh the local communities all of the the grief of what investigations grand juries what all of that impeachment what all of that might look like um because it would not be pretty uh at all even still if they even if they all resign uh, my hope would be is that the the new officials that would take over wouldn't just say we're going to you know sweep this in the dustbin and move on. I would hope that they would use their power to begin to you know make sure that everything uh, is in order in McCurtain County because uh, this is this is one of those deals where if you're if you're uh, inspecting a home and you see you know, a little bit of wiring that's uh, that's amiss, usually if you get behind the wall or crawl up in the attic, uh, there's a lot more uh, issues as well. You know things that that could uh, cause you know, fires that you're not even looking at. And so 
that's something that I is going to need to happen regardless. There's also an opportunity. So you talked about the the grand jury. There's the multi-county grand jury that, you know, I'm assuming that if the attorney general is involved, that's the mechanism that he would begin to use to collect evidence and, and testimony that could potentially be used in either a criminal proceeding or uh, or in an impeachment proceeding. But there's also a citizen-led uh, uh, potential for a grand jury. And this is kind of an interesting, you know, facet of, of Oklahoma law in that, um, citizens through an initiative petition, if they have enough signatures in the county, they can force a grand jury on their own. And you know, I, I have, uh, as you've watched, um, you've seen a lot of people in McCurtain County who uh, recognize that this is a black eye uh, on, on them, on this part of the state. Uh, they don't believe that this reflects on, on who they are and what they believe in. I would not be surprised at all if they don't see some immediate action uh, to move forward uh, to clean house here, that you might see some sort of a signature drive to go out and get these signatures, which I imagine would not be that difficult to get and force that grand jury process uh, even without some sort of official state action. And the implications beyond just all of the controversies surrounding these allegations is the fact that uh, um, southeastern Oklahoma, and particularly this county, has become, pe- become um, somewhat of a tourist mecca, uh, mm-hmm. largely with folks coming from Texas more so than uh, any other area. So the economic uh, driver of all of uh, of all of what uh, has been developed down there and the impact from this negative publicity that could be ongoing for weeks or months or longer uh, would have to have some impact. So the seriousness of that, I think, is now starting to weigh in, not only on the elected uh, of elected officials, but just the community at large. And like you say, that could lar- that could be an impetus for folks to rise up and say, hey, we if, if you're not going to take care of business, we're going to take care of our own business as quickly as possible. Everything that we know here is the product of local journalism. You know, a huge thanks to the uh, Gazette News in McCurtain County, mm-hmm. uh, because we wouldn't know about this. And that's why it's so important. We have these local journalists that are in the communities, have local papers. We're seeing less and less of that uh, across the state of Oklahoma. The fact that somebody was there in that community and knew to even dig into this. Uh, you know, otherwise, we would, we would all be, and especially the folks in McCurtain County, be flying in the blind. The state house swiftly passes legislation based off Governor Stitt's compromise education plan. House Speaker Charles McCall bypassed the standard legislative process by stripping a Senate bill and putting in the new language. The new measure now heading to the Senate ties teacher raises to tax credits for private and homeschool families. Ryan, what are your thoughts on these bills? Well, and, you know, some additional context. And, you know, I, I hate to give up the, the radio magic here, but we're taping this Thursday morning, <laughs> folks. The, the legislature is currently in session. Uh, I raced over from the Capitol uh, to, to get here to tape. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, I, this is just some context. This is one of the strangest legislative sessions that I've, I've been a part of 21 years out at the Capitol. I've been at the, the session I've been for this session out at the Capitol just about every day that they've been, uh, been around, uh, and doing business. And it's one of the strangest sessions. And, you know, it started out with this, this context of lines drawn in the sand, maybe earlier than they've ever been drawn Mm -hmm. uh, and drawn by different parties. And then you had that coming off of an election in which the governor felt that he had a mandate to push for school choice. There seemed uh, then to possibly put uh, the Senate and uh, President Pro Temp Greg Treat in the driver's seat because he'd already been championing that. And then the the logjam had been in the House. But everything seems to have flipped right now. And, you know, right now, from from what I understand, the governor and uh, and his team are are very uh, frustrated with the Senate and vice versa. Uh, the House now has passed the governor's uh, education plan, which, uh, surprise, 
uh, really mirrors the education plan that the House presented at the, at the outset. And remember, that the dynamics here, you've got two supermajorities in both chambers uh, controlled by Republicans, but the House is uh, much more of a rural uh, uh, body than, than the Senate, just by virtue of the size of the Senate districts. And, you know, I, I can tell you, you know, that rural Oklahomans uh, do feel a bit of a slight. They do feel a little bit left behind. You know, their, their hospitals are closing. You know, their, their schools are closing. Um, and, you know, they, they like this. You know, so whenever the, the Senate has a plan that doesn't emphasize rural school districts the way that the House believes that theirs does, I don't know that it does, but they believe that it does, um, you know, there is this, you know, kind of this rural urban slight that's happening. Um, you know, and then late last night, uh, the governor, so late Wednesday night, the governor started issuing vetoes uh, on basically every Senate bill that was hitting his desk. And in his veto message was saying, this bill doesn't have anything. It's like, I, I'm not vetoing this because of anything in this bill. I'm vetoing this because I'm not going to sign any measure from the Senate, essentially, until uh, I get an education plan, a school choice, voucher, tax credit, education plan, teacher pay rate, whatever they want to call it, and a tax cut plan. Uh, and so it's really put the onus, uh, onus on the Senate um, as of right now. This is a deadline week. Everything uh, is supposed to come off of the opposite floor chamber. So Senate bills have to be done off the House floor and House bills have to be done off the Senate floor this week. Um, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of frustration and, and high emotion out at the Capitol right now. Neva, are you seeing the same thing over at the Capitol? A- absolutely. And I think you're right, Ryan. I mean, this this uh, drama, I mean, just uh, Wednesday evening, when you, when you have the governor uh, just summarily vetoed 20 plus Senate bills. I mean, and just to get everybody's attention, um, and really with with I think a big question mark of what is the end game because mm-hmm. uh, there seems to be very little uh, evidence that that Republican senators uh, are really buying into this plan at all. Um, and I think there have been conversations, certainly a lot uh, in the halls and behind closed doors to that effect. If that's true, if it's, a, if it's DOA in the Senate, then they're still back to square zero. Not only are they back with no possibilities of a, uh, a compromise or something that the governor intended when he talked about it last uh, Friday in his weekly news conference where he was, going to, he was going to be the guy, let me forge the consensus, let me get something on the table, uh, let's find a way to get this uh, impasse resolved. And it really has gone nowhere. I mean, they're back. They're back. Uh, it's kind of uh, back again where they started. And I don't uh, know. And I think one of the big questions a lot of people are now kind of whispering and talking about is, how is this going to impact even and more complicate this final month of session when we have seen no real work done on the budget uh, at all? I mean, and certainly nothing that brings both the House and Senate. Uh, folks together to begin to really negotiate and and come up with something that can ultimately be passed. And there's even conversation now that if they can't get the budget, that we'll be in special session in June uh, where they will have the clock even ticking down once again uh, to try to uh, get their job done. And so there is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of give and take. But at the end of all of this, what you have is this the uh, Senate leader, Greg Treat, you have the House Speaker, uh, Charles McCall, and you have the governor. And those three folks are really ultimately 
going to be the ones, somebody's going to have to blink. And, you know, if the Senate uh, digs in, as they at least are giving indications right now this week that that's where they're at and that they have really not entertained the idea much at all about this plan that was passed by the by the House this week, this education plan, um, it's, it, it is certainly, as you say, Ryan, it is a, every year we say, kind of when we get to the end of the session, that it's kind of this time where you have all the games played, all of the, all of the kind of backroom uh, efforts to get things either killed or passed in, in the last minutes. But in this instance, um, I think next week is going to be fascinating because uh, at some point, at some point, everyone has to agree to kind of uh, put everything behind them and move forward and get to the table. And right now, there's not much indication that's going to happen. Well, Trey Savage had a piece where he, he mentioned that uh, in Nondoc, where he said that in years past, Governor Stitt has been able to uh, get the House and the Senate to come together. But he's been able to do that because they were both angry at the governor. Uh, and right now, the governor is really aligned with the House. I mean, I don't think that there's any other way around it. Because as soon as the, the House did what they did yesterday, which I, I think caught a lot of people by surprise, including members uh, by surprise, they went into a, a full conference committee with all members of the House appointed to the conference committee, and they held that conference committee on the floor. I, I don't remember the last time that that's ever happened. Uh, and they moved these education bills very fast. You saw the governor's communication director very quickly on, on Twitter uh, and with media saying, you know, the House has done something big. Now it's the Senate's turn. Uh, I think that it's the pressure that I think that the House and the governor are putting on uh, the Senate doesn't seem to be working with the president pro temp treat. Uh, and so I, I don't see him blinking at this point. Um, and another, and this is just kind of hanging out there in the ether right now, the Senate uh, overrode the governor. We talked about this last week. The Senate overrode the governor's veto on the health care authority spending. Mm-hmm. Um, as of taping this right now, the House is not. And so, you know, it seems like there, there may be some contrition from the House to say, uh, and I, I don't know if there's been a deal made, but it's, you, you, you do see this, I, I say this as a kind of evidence of, of alignment between the House and, and the governor. The House may come back and override that today for all I know, but, uh, but they haven't yet. And so, and then now the governor is aligned with the House and their education package. You can't talk about a budget. Uh, without some resolution on these matters, because these are matters that, you know, when you add up education, you know, the Panasonic deal, all we're talking over a billion dollars uh, in expenditures right there. Any extra money that we've got in the couch, couch cushions are all taken up by tax cuts, Panasonic, and education. Um, and until there's some resolution on that, you can't really put together the rest of the budget. And that's where the and that's where you would believe that there is a consensus to be forged. I mean, everyone uh, has something they want badly. And that's where the negotiation normally comes. When you get the when you get the leaders to sit down, it's uh, it's the give and take. Yes, you can have this, but I absolutely have to have that. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, and then you get these these bills that bubble back up like this just this week. I mean, uh, the bill that uh, was talked about several weeks ago, kind of the OG&E bill, as it's called. I mean, this fight between the utility and and uh, uh, oil and gas and to have that come back up and and the the real friction and rub with a lot of these members who continue to you know kind of be pummeled back and forth between all of these competing entities uh, it's uh, it's definitely taking a toll I think on not only the the tone of the session but what ultimately the end of the session is really going to look like 
State Superintendent Ryan Walters is once again being called to appear before a House Appropriations and Budget Committee on Monday. Walters has previously declined to appear before lawmakers, but now he has come up with a plan to get more teachers into the classroom with a sign-up bonus of 50, up to $50,000 and a call for the legislature to provide an additional $150 million for merit-based pay raises. Neva, do you think Walters will show up this time? Well, that's a good that's a good question, and I wouldn't I, I wouldn't uh, hazard a guess. Uh, I w- one thing I will say is that uh, uh, that when he continues to say that he's committed uh, to working with the legislature, that he wants to increase education funding, he wants this pilot program he's laid out uh, to deal with teacher shortages and all of those things, um, not to come to the committee uh, meeting on Monday. Um, I think would uh, would put much of that conversation again in in peril. Um, you have a situation. This is not just the House uh, uh, A and B subcommittee. This is the full House committee, and so you'll have uh, you'll have the full membership of this committee there. And I think that there w- certainly would be an expectation that the superintendent would uh, would show up and would want to engage in the conversation. So uh, the fact that he's rolled out uh, the, his uh, bonus structure for uh, dealing with the teacher shortage, the fact that uh, this is ARPA money that uh, that would be these are federal dollars that would be uh, used for that with some matching from districts, which is a whole nother conversation mm-hmm. about where that is a non-starter with many of those folks. It it is a big conversation that certainly needs to take place. I mean, when you have have these extraordinary numbers, I think more than 4,000 emergency certifications this year, I mean, for, uh, to deal with the teacher shortage, um, it's, it's a conversation that's, that, that is a huge conversation that needs to take place, and we'll see where um, the superintendent comes down next week in terms of wanting to engage face-to-face with lawmakers to have that serious conversation. Right. Well, and if you want the lawmakers to do anything, uh, meeting with them face-to-face is, is kind of, uh, you know, lobbying no one of one. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it shouldn't have taken until, you know, late April for him to, you know, to even possibly show up in front of this committee. We still don't know whether he will or not. Uh, he is bound under law to appear. Uh, and if and if he doesn't, then, you know, possibly he could be escorted to the meeting by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. That could be interesting. Uh, but but I also suppose that, you know, politicians of, of the uh, that are cut from the same cloth as Ryan Walters, they like to be victims. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sure that he would he would love an image of having to be dragged in by, uh, you know, and his uh, dragged in by law enforcement to testify. And, you know, his communications director would have, you know, a field day with that. I don't know if he's got a permanent communications director, though, because we don't really know anything about the State Department of Education right now. Uh, it is laudable to say that we need to do everything that we can to attract teachers in the state of Oklahoma, especially since we have so many teachers exiting the profession because of the chaos that's been sown by Superintendent Walters, uh, in, or at least in part. I mean, it was already not great working conditions. And then when you've got someone that is your uh, purported leader, uh, and your representative at state government working on the issue that you care about, uh, who is you know, more concerned with chaos than he is with anything else, um, I, I can see why, that, why teachers in the state of Oklahoma feel demoralized. Um, you know, these, these plans, if, you're gonna, if you don't show up at, at the end of April with your legislative agenda, uh, you know, that's something that you, he needed to have been working on. And I know that he was only recently inaugurated, but at the very least, he should have been in these committee meetings. And instead of, you know, talking about, you know, pornography and all this other stuff, 
every one of those meetings that he's in, he should have been pushing like an actual legislative agenda, and he hasn't done that. So I, I think that all of this right now is, part, I don't want to say that it's part of an effort to rehabilitate his image because it doesn't seem to be paired with any else than that. I don't know if he knows that these ARPA dollars might have some Joe Biden cooties <laughs> on them. Uh, because he didn't go to the White House this week to celebrate the National Teacher of the Year that came from Oklahoma. How cool is that? Uh, that the nas- was celebrated at the White House with the First Lady and the President of the United States. Why wouldn't you go and celebrate our teacher in Washington, D.C.? And it's, and it's precisely that. I, th- I think that he's, he's just so uh, afraid of having a picture maybe with him and, and, and President Biden that you know, he just couldn't, he couldn't stand it. Uh, and that's just ridiculous. Uh, It's an honor. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And I do think the fact that, I mean, this is the first time for the, for our state, first time since 1964 mm -hmm. that we've had the national teacher of the year. That's a big deal. Uh, and I think it should be applauded. I think, uh, certainly the opportunity for this, uh, uh, this teacher to be front and center, carrying a message, a positive message about education across the country, just like she did the past year mm-hmm. across 77 counties in Oklahoma uh, as the Oklahoma Teacher of the Year. Um, it, it is something that is noteworthy. And I think the other aspect of what you were just saying, Ryan, is this. The governor and, and the superintendent are of the same party. They ran in the same election year. They basically, on the subject of education, were mirror in terms of their uh, in terms of their thoughts of where Oklahoma needed to go uh, with respect to education. And now uh, the pressure, given all that we've described already, with the backdrop and in, in what is going on at the state capitol, does the governor not put pressure on Ryan Walters to show up, or does he does he kind of throw his uh, nominated uh, new cabinet secretary for education into the ring mm-hmm. and say, you know, you carry the ball for us and see if, uh, if see if we can at least make some strides to get a more positive atmosphere and conversation on the subject of education the largest single budget mm-hmm. <laughs> budgetary consideration yeah. for these lawmakers this year. Well, Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association. Physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.